Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. I'm Bianca Brahman. And I'm Lara Chambaker. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast from the Jackie Winter Group, which is a creative production and representation studio based in Melbourne and New York City. What originally started as a business conference for artists and fellow creatives is now being turned around to shine a light on our clients. From art buyers and creative teams to fellow producers and managers, this podcast is all about offering a glimpse into the work we do as the bridge between clients and creatives. It's an ongoing exploration of how to wrangle the creative process to achieve excellence no matter what the medium. Today, we're doing our first sequel as we revisit feedback and specifically cover the topic of revisions. We're going to start off by exploring the process of making revisions to ensure a project is on the right track. And later, we look at differences between Australian and U.S. markets and how we work them here at Jackie Winter. But before we get stuck in, how is everybody going today? Really good, Jeremy. How are you? I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's underwhelming. Bianca, how are you? I am so great. I just did an exercise class and I am ready, ready to go. Are you do, do you do Peloton at all? Do you know anything about that? Do you know what? One of our artists, Casper from Shadow Pop, does Peloton. What's Peloton? Apparently, it's it's something that you have at home. It's like a, it's like an exercise bike you have at home, but then there's it's kind of like you do classes with other people, like on a screen. Like yeah, it's of kind of competitive. Anyway, this has no relevance to what we're going to be talking about today, but what will be relevant is um, a bit of a roundup of what's been going around on our Slack this week in our professional development channel. Um, A few interesting links. One particularly notable one is a new podcast actually called the Digital Project Manager Podcast. And this came, again, from I think it's now my favorite newsletter on the internet, which is it came from, I think, the first or second episode, the uh, DPM-ish podcast. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was interesting that, well, this particular show seemed to only be in its kind of third or fourth episode. We're kind of running on parallel lines here. But yeah, it's great to kind of see, I guess, more conversations happening around kind of similar topics here. So I just thought I'd throw it out here in case anyone is interested in the things that we're specifically talking about. Here's something else that's happening at the same time, getting a different perspective. I think this is a bit more kind of, I guess, pure mm, advertising app um, tech it's focus. very digital focused, yeah. yeah, but still covering a lot of the broad concepts that we um, that we talk about here. Uh, another one that's been going around as well is um, this. The title of this article is "That Startup Logo Is Trying to Sell You Something," which is all about, I guess, the use of sans serif typography in um, a lot of the a lot of kind of lifestyle brands and. I, B, this is something I guess we'll get into our second topic a bit later as well, but I've also noticed some kind of criticism about like, well, especially a lot of these stars advertising on, on, on the subway system. This article could honestly have just been retitled, why does every sub New York subway ad look the same? It's mm. definitely an aesthetic. <laughs> Did you have any um, hot takes on this piece at all? Well, I mean, I think it, I, I think it was interesting. Like, it's an interesting kind of it delves into, I guess, the trend of typography at the moment. But I kind of think... Uh, you know it's like communication design is kind of all really about communication and you know a trend allows for like very quick association so I don't know I really like this piece uh, not only because of 
yeah, the, the point that it was making. And I guess it's interesting as well seeing design discussed on what traditionally is Rack the clothing site. Like, yeah, I think it's like a clothing, like a retail business uh, publication. Yeah, no, that was interesting. But also it was um, really, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but there's so many pieces I'm reading now where like I try to read the article. It's like, like if the internet isn't bad enough for attention, um, <laughs> for keeping your attention, then you get these articles and they're so linked to. And it's like to understand kind of the points you're trying to make, then you got to go to another link and kind of get in in context. And I guess it's interesting as well, like it, for something that is so graphically focused, um, you want to be able to put these things in context. But the piece itself is great. But yeah, you got to read the links as well to keep in context. But I think one of the, the interesting things as well, they talk about this clothing brand, Frank and Oak, which is only five years old, and it's already on its third logo. And they kind of talk about how the the brand being, a, I guess, a, a, a clothing brand that's really much in the digital space and is selling digitally and selling online and um yeah they've kind of they've moved with the i guess the fast-paced trends of digital yeah no super super interesting i thought it was funny because the article is obviously um exploring this aesthetic and why it's sort of come about but at the same time it's kind of poking a bit of fun at it and i couldn't help thinking to myself that yeah like i'm equal parts really sick of this look but also i can't stand anything else like anything outside of it I'm like oh it's too busy I hate it I can't use this website uh, Stephen Banham the um, Melbourne type designer and had a very similar campaign against Helvetica with a series of books and zines that he was doing um, I'll put a link to that as well on our show notes but yeah it, it's interesting that this is kind of this new neutral where like you know you can't not communicate with you know what a lot of type critics say as well and yeah this is just a, I guess an interesting slant on this discussion the more this kind of humanistic lettering is in play um, moving on from that there was um <laughs> there was this piece from ad age um, which is all about why one greek agency started selling its own sunglasses and coffee through the very paywall ad age we'll put the link to this piece on our show notes but yeah you might need to open it in a private browser window if you read ad age a lot hot tip <laughs> um b i'm i was really interested in this because i think yeah for in terms of what we do as well like we're moving into the product space in different ways um obviously the puzzle that we do through lemington drive has been a big drive of that but yeah what was your opinion on it well I mean I posted this to Slack because it was an interesting example of of something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast before which is how important it is to actually become a client yourself um and yeah this this agency I think it's Isobar in Greece have built both a sunglasses brand to kind of try and get into the mind of what it means to actually build a brand and a product and you know market that and manufacture that and they've also they also built a coffee company in an effort to reduce their spending on coffee in the agency but also selling that to the public as well and it was yeah it was interesting but I mean there's there's definitely a lot of agencies here that have dabbled in product development the one that I can think of that comes to mind is Anomaly um, who you know they actually have a line of beauty products called EOS which is sold in almost every drugstore here um really and have yeah it's like every you know you go into cbs or Dwayne reed and it's it's um one of the products that's sits there when you're you know buying your gum or your mints i can't believe you call them drugstores now bianca you've been there too long I know, I've changed. <laughs> I think one of the biggest examples of that would be maybe Acme as well, the gene company that's also a creative agency. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I keep them. forgetting if it's Acme or Acme. I don't remember. But um, yeah, and I think moving on from that subject as well is um, an article that was in Mumbrella this week, which is um, announcing the Mushroom Group, which is, um, I guess, one of Australia's 
pretty mo- well known record labels, independent it's record the biggest, labels. Yeah. yeah. And they've are they're opening their mushroom creative house offering, which is kind of just un, you know, you talk about agencies developing their own kind of product offerings. This is kind of I guess the flip side of that where you have other businesses um not necessarily consulting groups or management companies that we were talking about last week, but yeah, more businesses in the creative sphere taking control of the whole process as well and kind of bringing in their own creative there. Laura, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting and probably a pretty clever move for Mushroom Group. Um, it's Yeah, I'm genuinely really excited to see what comes out of this. They have a really interesting reach and, and I think they've realized a pretty great opportunity here. Um, I was reading on the website of, for the new creative uh, house offering, they sort of say, we're creative connectors. We have unparalleled access to the music and entertainment worlds. Together, we offer a complete solution that brings ideas to life, an agency that connects, a studio that creates. They've sort of split it into this like agency studio, um, these two sectors. Um, the divide's like a little confusing, but it seems like the agency side of things is based on developing brand partnerships with artists. Um, and then the studio is for creative execution. Across the two, the website says they offer like a really interesting wide range of stuff like everything from music licensing uh, social media strategy video production app development design and illustration event production and a stack of other things so it'll be really interesting to see how they leverage the original sides of their business yeah look we'll definitely keep an eye on that and if you are interested in keeping an eye on it as well you can find that at our show notes at jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz also we are putting all of these links and show notes in a little newsletter that will come out every Friday just sign up at tiny letter.com slash Jackie Winter if you want to get those in your inbox every Friday that the podcast is launched. Starting us off this week um, in our main topics, this is actually the first time we're doing a bit of a part two. I think, you know, we were talking about feedback a few weeks ago and yet just realizing how much of a rich topic it was. Uh, It was funny, even last week when we were talking about VR and AI, AR, that was actually meant to be a one-parter, but it just kind of, that actually ended up taking the whole episode. There's just so much there to talk about. So yeah, we said we'd be back with part two. So here we are. This time, we're specifically going to be talking about rounds of revision and further exploring the differences between criticism and feedback. We'll also get to the ever-important question of how to know when a project's actually done. So I guess to start us off, Laura, uh, let's talk about why rounds of revision are actually important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess the question should almost be why are rounds of revision important to commercial creative projects? Um, Firstly, they're important because they're a really key part of the collaborative process, sort of allowing the creative visions and talents of the person executing the work and the person commissioning the work to come together. Uh, But most importantly, with all creative projects, as opposed to uh, fine art, for example, you're trying to produce something that hits set commercial objectives and revisions are about allowing the commissioner to guide the creative towards the requirements outlined in the brief. It's about course correction and refining the creative execution into the best version of itself that most effectively fulfills those communication objectives. Yeah, interesting. It's it's such a tough one because what I kind of see a lot of as well is that everyone kind of wants to eat the food before it's kind of cooked. And I think making sure that these revisions stay in check is well, a big part of kind of what we do in terms of guiding the project, because that's the whole thing. It's like you could effectively just keep iterating on something for ages and it could never be done effectively. I, I go back again to this architecture reference kind of so much, but 
in the projects that I've worked on, especially you know in doing this office. Again, coming back to why it's so important to being a client, I think that the revision process is where a lot of people kind of make most of their money, especially because people are always kind of changing their mind. So one thing we're always trying to think about is like, it's like, okay, well, yeah, how can you kind of keep these things in check? And I think a lot of this really comes into other things we've already spoken about a lot in other aspects, in other areas here in the podcast. Um, one of the big things is I think knowing upfront like how do revisions work, making sure that um, our clients are reading the fine print and make sure that's really kind of built into our estimates as well in terms of putting a you know, putting a figure against it and making sure that that is really explained up front, that there's no kind of questions about it. I think also um, it's really important for our clients to then know their clients um, in specifically when they need to kind of know if they're someone who does require kind of a lot of revisions and is kind of really kind of hands-on and to really make sure that they're managing their expectations correctly as well. Everyone, I guess, has a different tolerance in terms of how much they want to be involved in a project. One thing that I um, that I love talking about is the hairy arm technique. Laura, what? Are, you, are you aware of, of this one? Uh, no, enlighten me. <laughs> well, this is um, in the Lifehacker article that goes over this. It's on a million different sites, but yeah, it says, sometimes bosses and clients only exist to find something wrong and correct it. And I think that it, that can be really true sometimes where I think if, you know, People are working with creators, like we've said, because they, you know, they're bringing something else to the project that they don't have capacity to do. But not every manager or commissioning person is actually really inherently comfortable with that. So they have to have their mark on it in some way. And sometimes this can manifest in heaps of excess revisions. And so there are uh, some people have found different inventive ways to manage this. This is kind of, I guess, a bit of graphic design folklore. And he was saying that, like, yeah, one client was forever ruining projects by insisting on stupid changes. But then something odd started happening. Each time the client was presented with a newly photographed layout, he'd encounter the image of this big hairy arm and say, it's like, what, what's that hairy arm doing in there? Let's just, like, move it out of there. And it, well, that was actually a deliberate thing that the designer was doing. He put this big hairy arm in there knowing that the client would just kind of want to take it out. And they wouldn't feedback. On anything and they wouldn't else. feedback on anything <laughs> else. Yeah, and I've heard other things like this, where, for example, like if you know you want, um, if you know you want a logo to be a certain size in a layout, um, someone would make it kind of three times as big. Uh, sorry, sorry um, three times as small as they want it to be, and so then someone would say make it bigger, and they would make it bigger, but then it would actually be the size that kind of they wanted. <laughs> so anyway, there are little, I guess, tips and tricks like that. But I guess the thing as well is that yeah, if we are kind of putting forward our fine print in terms of how revisions work, and you don't think that's going to work your client, um, make sure we talk about that up front. I think as well, just to add to what you're saying is um, after, you know, really defining that up front and making sure everyone understands what revisions are included and what constitutes a revision and what charges they're facing if they go over that is also to then at each stage of the process, be clear with the client about how many revisions they have left and um, what needs to be signed off at each stage so that there's no confusion because it can be hard if you've never had to manage revisions before to know if what you're asking constitutes a revision and, you know, where those lines are drawn. Exactly. And I think one of the reasons this topic came up is because we were having this conversation on a brief where there was a bit of... Um not there, there was there's a bit of tension in terms of like well what constitutes a revision like well the you know you're actually not responding to the brief right or the, it's kind of you know off base here and this is where having the brief right is so important because yeah if you set that solid foundation if you're showing kind of references of work that you like 
if you're able to describe what you want with the feedback, then there typically aren't too many revisions because the brief is set out there um, accordingly. Yeah, and that's when it becomes, again, slight course correction rather than... Exactly. And even when you do kind of note how revisions work and how much it costs, like sometimes it doesn't, you can't just keep throwing money at something and hope it's going to work because you will break the spirit of the other person if they feel that it's gotten to the point where they don't have any creative input and they're just kind of, you know, mechanically just doing what you say. Nobody's kind of going to get a really good result there as well. I I think as well, it's about having like some trust in your changes you know like not having to see 12 versions of everything and then pick the best one if you see one and it's working and it's good you know there's no need to see 20 other versions of it we've spoken a lot about guiding the feedback loop and and i think you know where we are in the industry you know we are often bringing people and people and brands together with things like technology or ideas or mediums or processes that they may never have worked with before, Um, which means, you know, you're kind of being thrown into new territory and dealing with combinations of things that you may have never come across before. And and one of those, um, one of those uh, things is, you know, a client that may be someone that isn't particularly visual, that will only say, I'll, I'll see it when I see it. Like that's, that's it. And so, you know, I think it's, it's our responsibility to try and guide that. And the, you know, the easiest way to do that is to kind of sit down with someone beforehand um, and take the time to actually step them through the process of how you'll get from nothing to the finished product um, and, you know, actually help them understand how everything will come together. And maybe that's, you know, showing a case study of, of something that you've done before that's similar or whether it's, you know, sharing reference imagery. It's kind of like sh- like guiding them through the touch points that they'll be seeing at each stage of the process so that they know what to expect. This comes back to some bigger cultural points as well, though, because I do think that sometimes our clients like to kind of shield us from the process a bit in terms of like, well, you know, the, the agency wants to, the agency wants to, wants the client to feel like, okay, they're, they've done kind of all the work and they, like, they don't want to see, you know, the quote unquote vendors in the background doing all the dirty work. But I think it would be so much better if we were more involved with those kind of processes. But yeah, there are times where it's, it isn't about kind of smaller changes and sometimes revision requests become something bigger. They become an actual change of scope, an actual change of brief. Um, Laura, how do you kind of determine when you're managing a project what's what? Yeah, generally, I think of a revision as a slight variation to the current concept, right? And typically would be a change of less than, say, 15 to 30% of the design, depending on what stage of the project we're at. I think the key takeaway is that a revision is simply meant to be a course correction to progress towards the final design and objectives of the original brief. If the direction of the brief itself is changing, then this is generally out of scope and would have to be considered additionally. So, you know, if the request actually changes the previously defined complexity of the project, for example, you want to add uh, five new illustrated characters to a scene that originally had two, um, this is very much a change of scope and not just around a revision as it significantly affects the amount of time taken to create the project and therefore you know, the estimated costs are no longer that accurate. Yeah, definitely. I absolutely agree. This is, again, I think to round things off, knowing kind of when a project is done, what Bianca is kind of talking about as well, stepping people through the process and actually just showing examples of how you actually work and what it means to kind of move through processes and using things like, you know, having kind of language that you're using for kind of milestones in terms of, okay, these are first sketches, these are tight sketches, these are final art, and you're kind of showing people what it kind of means to move through these stages. 
I'm going to come back to this metaphor time and time again of, of, of architecture. Like one of the best things we did when we started the project was seeing, okay, this is how they have worked with other clients and this is what the process is like and these are what these kind of different things meant. Therefore, I kind of knew up front. It's like as soon as I said, oh, actually, I want to kind of go back to this or do something different that represented a complete, you know, kind of change or within what we were able to do and have those kind of conversations. So, yeah, it's definitely something that you should be explaining, I think, as a creative or as an agent. And I think as a client, if you don't understand it, it's important to actually kind of get it. Um, I think as well, just in terms of knowing when a project's done, there should come a point in most projects where any of the proposed changes are making the product different, but not necessarily different. Better, and it's important to be able to recognize that. And again, it has to go back to the brief and saying that, like, you need to be able to look critically at the feedback and say, is this moving the project forward? Is it actually doing something? Or are we just kind of, are we just going in circles here? You have to be able to defend your work. And just like we were saying, what a good client does is actually defend you and your creative decisions. And that has to be kind of sold up the chain. I guess the final bit over here is kind of talking about what's the difference between criticism and feedback. Like when is criticism just kind of tearing a piece of work down um, for no ends? And when is it actually, you know, critical feedback to make those course corrections? Yeah, I mean, I think criticism leads with opinion, you know, I think it looks silly, it's not very well thought through, or whatever, which, which isn't very helpful to the person on the receiving end, really. Um, feedback, on the other hand, works with facts, it's the real stuff versus just your perceptions. Feedback is aimed really at providing meaningful, relevant, um, useful information designed to help improve the work or the situation. And it needs to be grounded in things that both parties can actually observe, I think. Um, whereas criticism is sort of more rooted in blame. Um, the intention of criticism is not so much to help or improve the recipient, but more so to make them feel a bit guilty for their actions. Um, and criticism generally comes as a result of emotional reasoning rather than logical. And when we criticize, we naturally put the other person on the defensive, which not only reduces the chances of that person doing anything constructive with your thoughts, but it can set you up for a pretty difficult dynamic in the long run. And comparatively, when we share real feedback, we take away that implied threat and, and that defensive response. And we're inviting the other person into a discussion about the potential for a project and opportunities to improve it. It's about having like a balanced conversation with you giving fact-based comments that will help them come to a solution for the issues that you've highlighted. And I think giving feedback as opposed to criticism can really strengthen relationships and create an opportunity for everyone's growth, even if that feedback is negative. Absolutely. I think that one of the best things that you can ensure to make sure that it is feedback is it has to, you need to be able to look at it critically and say, is this actionable? Can someone take what I've done and actually do something from it? There's a lot of crossover here, again, with the actual kind of briefing process and the feedback process because they are kind of one in the same effectively. When you're giving feedback, it should always be coming back to the brief. The brief is that is that kind of, I guess, yeah, that rock that you're really always trying to drive it to. I think there are other logistical things that we can do, especially with language, um, when we're talking about feedback as well. I personally find giving feedback one of the most challenging aspects of my role. And I, I do, you know, it's it's can, even if it is guided back to the project, it can at times be difficult to stomach, um, especially when you're on the receiving end. But I do think that, you know, we talked about Mike Montero many times on the podcast before, who's a graphic designer that has a really incredible way of making the creative process as objective as possible and seeing it for what it is, a job. And he um, he talks very much about uh, regardless of, you know, I guess who you are, whether you're in an advertising agency developing a campaign for your client or you're an architect designing a house or an artist illustrating a book, 
um, yeah, anything that involves a client vendor relationship is inherently collaborative and it's a partnership. And, um, you know, the thing that you, you are trying to con- create can't exist without the skills, experience or knowledge of both parties coming together. So I think definitely when, when receiving feedback is to actually take a step back and view the feedback in the context of the creative or the business goals of the project, um, you know, your client is there to use their, I mean, we spoke about this, this, I think when we were speaking about the, the brief and, and finding like a creative partnership, you know, your client is there to use their insight and expertise to pick up on any flaws or mistakes. And, you know, those that you've commissioned, whether that's an architect or a designer or an illustrator, they're there to do the same. So everything should kind of relate back to the project's goals and framing the feedback you receive in this context can help you, I guess, step back and see it for what it actually is and actually guide it back to the brief. Um, yeah, I mean, it's important to be open-minded um, and open to feedback. And part of that is perhaps uh, taking a step back, taking some time, understanding that it's it's not you, it's, it's the project. Yeah. And I think, you know, to end as well, one thing that we said in our first piece was don't forget about positive feedback as well. You know, this is a lot of being critical feedback, but don't be afraid to say when things are working well. So you're to, doing a great job, Jeremy. Hey, Laurie, you're doing a great job. Hey, Bianca, you too. Guys, you're all doing such a good job. <laughs> all right, let's end it there. Okay, and with that, we'll move on. And on to our second topic. We work with creatives and clients from both Australia and the US every day, and there really are differences between the markets. And although I've worked with many US clients on one-off projects in my time, my experience of actually functioning long-term within the US system is pretty limited to stopovers in LAX on the way to visit my Latino family. So in an effort to explore the two working cultures further, I'm going to be picking Jeremy and Bianca's brains today as they've both had some really interesting experience across the two lands. Um, Jeremy, you grew up in New York and moved to Melbourne quite a few years ago now. Can you give us a bit of a recap on your journey so far? (laughs) Well... It was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) I came to Australia in 2001 after working in art direction in the editorial world in America. And when I was started kind of doing more design work here and doing doing presentations, uh, one thing that I always loved kind of showing was taking a masthead from a magazine and kind of showing all the people that worked in it from a U.S. magazine compared to an Australian magazine where a U.S. magazine... The, you know, were really kind of institutions of sometimes, you know, up to 100 people on a simple title or over here, you would have like three person teams working on multiple titles, which was kind of crazy. So it, it was really interesting to see moving to Australia, just how different things were affected sheerly because of the population, even though I think that a lot of the consumption habits, I think, especially one of the magazine figures I read was that at one point, not too long ago, kind of Australia had, I guess, the highest readership of magazines. I don't know what the exact kind of stat was, but like the amount of people this as well. it's per crazy. magazines, like it was insane. I was like, well, with all those kind of people, then surely that reach is great. And then surely advertising is flowing and surely that could support a more <laughs> robust. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really, um, I'm not going to say depressing because I think there's something really um, akin to the Australian spirit here, which is, I, I wish I knew the exact name of this, um, of this plant, like this bush plant that kind of survives with no no 
water, you know, in the bush. <laughs> and so I think resilient. Very, yeah, there is this kind of, I guess, a cultural, a cultural of kind of resilience and doing a lot with a little. And I've seen that here. Um, whereas definitely in, I think the reason, well, America is so interesting is because there's um, people can really kind of focus on such smaller kind of niches and you could have these kind of these real kind of narrow cast economies happen from magazines to advertising as well. We're like in ad agencies, like when, you know, my friends were leaving kind of um, college and kind of working at ad agencies, like, what do you do? It's like, well, you work this one ad, ad agency. It's like, oh, yeah, like I work for, um, you know, you know, I work on Ford, but I actually only work for the Midwest states for this type of dealer and this kind of thing. Like you can really kind of drill down and do these very specific things where people here are working across everything. Um, and I think, yeah, that really, you know, how that that all kind of trickles down into what budgets are available to do what things with um, and what kind of um, creative community that can support, whether it's photographers, illustrators, writers. Mm. It has a huge, you know, cultural impact as well. So a lot of, I guess, what happens in advertising does kind of have much broader effects. So, yeah, I'm... I can see both very positive and negative, you know, impacts of of that kind of system. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's also interesting as well, because I didn't have a chance, like, I only worked in the States for, I don't know, like, four or five years before moving over here. And that was, God, now it's like 15, 16 years ago. So, B, I'm really kind of interested to hear how you reconcile your experience going, you know, coming the other way around. Yeah, you only moved to um, New York a little over a year ago, right, to establish our new office. Yes. So I did move here 12 months ago to establish the New York office. And I mean, I was born and raised in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I've traveled a little, but this is really my first time living outside of Melbourne. So yeah, I think I would say, I think I would agree with you, Jeremy. I think the biggest cultural difference would, well, the biggest difference, I mean, there's a lot of cultural differences, but the biggest difference is the scale. I mean, America the population is 350 million, Australia, 25 million. So the opportunities and budgets that exist here are much greater. And that, yeah, I guess that uh, market allows for more specialization. Whereas I think one of the really interesting things coming from Australia that I really kind of love about Jackie Winter is that, um, you know, you can afford to specialize here in the US because the market is there to support it. But um, in Australia, you you know, the tiny population means that you really do have to diversify your offering. Um, that's kind of the key to surviving and thriving. And yeah, it's it's one of the things that I really love about, I guess, the, the offering and the culture that we've built at Jackie Winter is that we do work across such a broad spectrum of the creative industry and, you know, have experience producing such a diverse range of projects. Um, and I think that that diversity is is a unique byproduct of the challenges of growing a, growing a business in a small market like Australia, where it's definitely something that, that maybe clients here uh, sometimes have a little bit of difficulty understanding. Totally. I mean, so you'd say that that sort of trait that you've you've gained from growing and working in Australia has benefited you working in the States? I absolutely. I mean, uh, but I think one of the one of the interesting things to me, I guess, coming from coming from somewhere like Australia to to New York, um, you know, Australia is so under resourced. And, you know, I guess the, the lack of resources really does forces you to find like the most efficient way to do things where and there's a little bit more fluidity within the structure of, of organizations and advertising agencies and stuff like that. You know, Australians, we have to wear many different hats. And it feels like there is far less hierarchy and bureaucracy, whereas America is like the United States of bureaucracy. It's there's like the land of like red tape and paperwork. And there are just so many more 
layers and you talk about Jeremy you know having a, I guess an editorial masthead of a hundred different people everyone has a very specific role within an organization um and yeah everyone has their place there's there's far more hierarchy within um an organization there's so many more layers to management and you really have to kind of follow strict processes and patiently wait for things to go up the chain for approval where I think in Australia you have like a little bit more flexibility and agility to kind of find you know the solution that's going to be the most efficient um how has that affected how you run a creative project over there compared to how you would have run one when you were working here with australian clients we also i mean one thing that you got to keep in mind is the whole legal atmosphere as well oh yeah i think the reason there is a lot of bureaucracy there is because there's a much there a fear of litigation? litigation exactly and you know just like we were talking about the differences in fair use in our previous episode about you know, how how the laws really are kind of different i do think that it is i mean apart from the fact that i think budgets are a lot you know healthier in america again i think it surely surely comes back to to population size the, the cultural issues are really what cannot be denied and i think that's one thing i found so interesting moving to australia how things are so even though geographically enormous country um tiny population though that is kind of changing everything is still kind of centered around melbourne and sydney i be something that we talk a lot about is like the crazy hours that people seem to work as well like there is kind of something about kind of lifestyle as well like and australia is a very i guess lifestyle focused country in a certain way you know t- you talk yeah about i things. think well, yeah i think australians do perhaps have a slightly better grasp of work-life balance what have you kind of noticed in terms of the hours people work and what is expected of people yeah i mean it's not it's not uncommon for clients here in new york especially to well advertising agencies to not actually meet with their clients to review work in progress until six thirty, seven o'clock at night which is uh, I mean, Australians work hard and I guess if you work in advertising in in Melbourne or Sydney, you might, you know, every now and again, you pull a late night to, you know, work on a pitch or something like that. But here it's consistent. Yeah, or a podcast. (laughs) I think there's a lot about FaceTime. Like if you're not working late um, and you're not responding to emails after hours, then... Uh, I, yeah, I think Americans do put a lot of value on FaceTime and input versus output, whereas I feel like, you know, Australia being a smaller country, which is under-resourced and it does have a slightly better, you know, work-life balance. Most companies only give you two weeks leave, right? Is that standard? Or is yeah, this I, an evil rumour I've heard? No, I think I think that I think that is pretty standard. I mean, I I know it's that Christmas and you're done. Two weeks with your family is not leave. <laughs> There's a lot of other kind of movements that are happening. This is kind of something that I really why I love kind of reading the the signal versus noise, the 37 signals base camp kind of blog about how they deal with kind of employment issues because it's like you know they talk so much about you know how. Yeah, but kind of keeping work at work and and all these other things is like, oh, is this so much of a problem? But like, yeah, like talking to be more like I do realize actually it is and it puts that in a different context. But also the fact that there are other perks that are kind of coming up, like a much bigger culture of remote work, I think, is happening there, which I think in the U.S. In the U.S. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's happening here as well. I think one other thing we didn't touch on is, I guess, what the relative attractiveness of um, or kind of exoticism of an Australian in in the States is. And I think that it, one thing I don't know if I touched on was that Jackie Winter was originally set up to 
take Australian artists to the States. Like we were, it was kind of a bit of a fluke that we ended up having such a big client base and only really actively working in the States 10 years later. One thing I noticed that was unique about Australian illustrators in particular is that, yeah, there aren't those kind of higher education pathways where you can say, I want to become an illustrator. Typically, well, again, this is specific for illustration, but I am noticing in other fields like animation, for example, like you have to kind of, well, you used to have to kind of fold it into something else. It's like, well, your communications design but you're going to take an illustration elective and it's just kind of something you do on the or, side. Or, yeah, you, something you just practice as a hobby. And But that's kind of yeah. the interesting thing that I think that, well, especially when we started Jackie Winter, like a lot of these artists were kind of, I guess, quote-unquote outs- outsider artists because they hadn't had that formal education. And I think when people kind of saw that in other really active markets like America, there was a lot of kind of attractiveness there. And But you see it in other fields as well, like, you know, how um, in acting, some sports as well. Um, but, yeah, how there's this, there is this kind of kind of I guess inherent attractiveness there but one thing that I am kind of hearing be you maybe correct me if I'm wrong is that there maybe there are too many Australians in the states there at the moment oh so many of us like <laughs> I, I can sometimes go an entire weekend and only hang out with Australians yeah <laughs> no, there, there I, I think yeah there there's definitely a lot of us here interesting New York is is a very progressive place, but it's also incredibly traditional. And that's something that I wasn't really expecting. Like I, um, corporate culture here is incredibly formal and I'm still trying to get used to that. Whereas back home, it is a little bit more um, laid back and, and casual. Like Americans love talking and they love setting up meetings. Whereas some of our clients, especially here in advertising in New York, they love every time they give feedback, they love to jump on the phone talk through it and I think for some of our artists that's maybe been a little bit of a challenge as our Australian artists are perhaps more used to simply receiving feedback that's written and getting on with it and really only jumping on the phone to talk if there's a problem whereas here it seems that you know it's a culture of meetings like you jump on the phone you chat and you keep chatting at any chance that you get. I did want to say though that I don't think that one is better than the other. I think it's just different. And, and, you know, I really do enjoy working here because there is the opportunity to do big, exciting things that, you know, are visible on the world stage. But I do also find it refreshing for someone like me that likes to work really quickly. It's kind of nice to be in Australia and just kind of roll up your sleeves and get moving. Whatever, B. You know Australia <laughs> so much better. <laughs> and Melbourne's better than Sydney. Hell yeah. And Collingwood's yeah. better than Fitzroy. <laughs> but Jeremy, well, I mean, what do you, as a, I, I think going back street. to a question that Lara asked before, like <laughs> as, as an American in Australia, what do you think has been something that you've brought with you that has either given you an advantage or a disadvantage? That's interesting. I, I definitely think there's some kind of, we, we go back to the cultural cringe and the tall poppy thing. And there's this kind of thing. It's like, oh, it's like, you know, if someone's from somewhere else, like they must be better or like they're more authentic or they have better ideas. And I think, you know, that's, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think I necessarily do, but, um, but yeah, there's, there's a bit of baggage that kind of comes with that in, in, in some regards, but um, yeah, that's, it's an interesting question. I haven't really kind of thought of that as much. I think there's, Jackie Winter kind of came from taking my experience in America and kind of trying to apply it here and saying like, oh, hey, like, you know, why isn't this thing here that made my life so much easier? Um, So it's easier to be in touch with, I guess, different ways to kind of solve problems. And I think that definitely helped in a business sense. But yeah, I think that gap is kind of closing every year. And I think, yeah, I think if, if Australia wants to afford some, you know, of the other opportunities that a larger country needs to afford, they need to, you know, think really about, you know, population growth and letting people in. And, you know, that's obviously getting into other politically charged areas. But it's, you know, it's important. It's important things to consider. 
especially for the creative landscape. And I think one of the most interesting things about Australia is our position in the world geographically blends cultures in a really unique way. Um, and yeah, it's a really special place. And I think I'm, you know, it's really exciting as well to kind of close the gap and, you know, and officially work in the States to get that perspective globally. So I think, yeah, I think we'll leave it there. But I look forward to seeing how things um, continue to evolve. And um, actually, we can move this straight into, I guess, a very relevant um, segment, which is our the most Melbourne and the most New York thing that happened to us this week. Laura, what do you got? Oh, holy moly. Um, this is the most terrifyingly Melbourne thing. Um, this didn't happen to me, thank God. Um, but anyone not from here is always making a fuss about Australian wildlife and how it's all out to get you. Oh, this is my thing. Uh, we both have the same thing. Go away, I'm first. <laughs> no, no, you mean, I mean, everyone is terrified of sharks, <laughs> of snakes, of spiders and drop bears and... I'm always telling visitors like not to worry that it's fine. You know, we um, live in harmony with our wildlife. Just don't be stupid. It's all a massive exaggeration. Um, but, oh, my God, far out. What happened this week was just, oh, it put me right off my breakfast. Um, some poor teenager took himself off to Brighton Beach, which for those listening outside of Melbourne is just a, a very popular local beach. Um, he took himself off for a little cool down after footy practice. And after a quick dip, he felt a little bit of pain in his legs. He wandered out onto the shore to see them absolutely like spewing blood from knee to ankle. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. It's terrible. It's terrible. And he had zero clue what could have happened. And so he takes himself off to the hospital and they've got no clue either and they can't stop the bleeding. And eventually his dad goes back to the beach with a net and tries to figure out what's happened. And he comes back with like a bucket full of these flesh eating sea bugs. And the photos are so fucked up and I'm never going into the sea again. There is purportedly a video. That oh, someone I've seen took this. Of, wait, is this the oh, meat? The meat. Yeah, yeah. Can the you... bugs eating the meat. The dad took a video of the bugs in a tray, sort of like eating this flesh to sort of show what it did to his son's legs. It's so mental. This is just a regular local beach. He wasn't like deep sea diving or anything. Oh, yeah. Well, Bianca, what about flesh-eating uh, animals near you? Anything? No flesh-eating animals, but um, I did the most American thing that I've done in a very long time, and I ended up at a fish concert. So that's P-H fish. P-H-I-S-H. Yes, Bianca. Everybody I, in the world knows, I, except I was, for you. I mean, I, I live under a rock. For those podcast listeners who perhaps live under a rock as well, fish are an American jam band from the 80s, and their, their fan base are pretty... Not from the 80s. They're <laughs> eternal. The fish has no day. Well, do you know what? So I I had no idea what I was walking into, but I have a friend that works at the record label and invited me last minute. And I kind of, I mean, I was a little bit curious because my friends were like, oh yeah, fish heads, they're crazy. Um, and I'd never been to Madison Square Garden. And they were playing a, apparently a 13 show residency, which was sold out. I think they're one of the most successful touring bands in America. Over two and a half weeks, they played 250 different songs with not a single repeat. And they were all, every single night was a different donut theme. So they, yeah, that was crazy. At the end of the run, the mayor of New York officially declared yesterday, Fish Day. Oh, God. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Lara. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you.
This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast about creative project management and production and just making things happen in general. Our producer is Areed Noor. You can find the Jackie Winter Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season. And you can email us with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at JackieWinter.com. Archives of all of our shows and show notes can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz, along with a sign-up for our newsletter to get the show notes and episode links in your email every week at tinyletter.com slash JackieWinter. Our theme music is by Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you love what you hear, you can really help us by subscribing and especially rating and commenting on iTunes. Details on our website at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye-bye. And so she holds a flame, but it's just cellophane blowing in the wind. You be waiting too long. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> this is hell. going at the end. Okay. <laughs>